0: Be a light, not a judge. Be a model, model, not a critic.
1: If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out.
0: Mark Golston, welcome to Inside Out. I'm so pleased to be here uh, with my good friend, Bill Salibi's son.
1: Awesome. I'm so excited. So. I love research and I love learning origin stories and how people really became the human being they are today. So I want to go back in time and I want to go back to your days as a med student at Boston University School of Medicine. Specifically, I want you to tell me about a guy, a guy named Dean William McNeary, better known as Mac, and why he was such an important figure in your life.
0: Wow. Right out of the gate. You, you go, you go first. Show, show us your neck, uh, Dr. Mark. So, so I've accomplished a fair amount of my life, but I think my, one of my greatest personal accomplishments is I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I didn't drop out to see the world. I dropped out because I think I had untreated depression. And so the first time I dropped out, I worked in a blue collar job. And I loved it. And I came back, and my mind was functioning at a blue collar level, and nothing against blue collar people. But in med school, I needed my mind to work at a different level. So I lasted about three months or six months. I can't remember it so many years ago. And I asked for another leave of absence. So I was passing everything, and I met with the dean of the school who cares about fundraising. I don't remember the meeting, but then I got a call from the Dean of Students, Dean William McNary, Dean of Students, who we called Mac, a Bostonian Irish Catholic. And Mac called me and he said, Mac, Mac, this is Mac. Mac, Mac, you better get in here, Mac. I got a letter here from the Dean. So I go in there and I was at a low point, Bill. And I come from a background where you know my parents were good people, but depression age and it's not that unusual where especially if you're a young man, you are what you do. And if you don't do much, you're not worth much. So I think I was at a low point. There I go, and I go into Mac's office, and he says, Hey, Mac, read this letter. It's from the dean. And I read the letter, and it says, I've met with Mr. Goulston. We discussed an alternate career, and I'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw. And I said, what does this mean? And he said, Mac, you've been kicked out. And I'm not a religious person. Some people say I'm spiritual, but I'm not sure exactly what that means. And it was like I got kicked in the stomach. I feel my cheekbones and it, they're wet. And it feels, and I kid you not, I thought I was bleeding from my eyes. That's pretty spiritual. And I'm looking at my hands and I'm staring at my hands and it's not blood, it's tears. And then imagine you hear this. You're kicked out. Uh, You feel as if you've been shot in the gut. And I know what that feels like because I had a perforated colon about 15 years ago that I almost died from. Felt exactly like that. It's like I caved in. And he says to me, Mac, you didn't screw up because you're passing everything, but you are screwed up. But if you got unscrewed up, I think this school would be glad they gave you a second chance. And so suddenly I'm listening to this. And I don't know what he's saying. And what it is, is it's compassion, pure compassion and empathy. And he said, and Mark, even if you don't get unscrewed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you. And so I'm crying even more. And and he says, Mark, I'd be proud to know you because you have a streak of goodness in you that we don't really grade in medical school perhaps we should. And you don't know how much the world needs that streak of goodness and kindness. And you won't know it till you're 35, but you have to make it till you're 35. And then he says, look at me. And he points his finger out at me like I'm pointing at you. And he says, and you deserve to be on this planet. Do you understand me? And you're going to let me help you. And I looked at him and I'm just sobbing. And I remember I lifted my left hand kind of weakly and I said, I think I'd like that. And so the trifecta of seeing value in me that I didn't see, seeing f- a future for me that I didn't see, and being willing to go to bat for me against the medical school, it flipped the switch in me. I didn't know it at the time, but it flipped the switch. And then I met with the promotions committee. And I made my case to them. Actually, I'll share this with you because I probably should have dropped out because it gave me a hint that I have a flair for the dramatic. So the head of the promotions committee was head of surgery at Boston, Medi- now Boston Medical Center, then Boston City Hospital. And he was universally disliked because he was arrogant, condescending, impatient. He always put people down. And so I'm surrounded by all these doctors in the promotions committee and Dean McNary, and they're all asking me you know, questions. And, and I can understand now, in retrospect, they got they more on the agenda. So the head of the promotions committee takes over and he says, look, you dropped out once, you come back, now you're dropping out. It doesn't sound like you're going to be a good uh, doctor. Why don't we just cut our losses? Why should we let you become a doctor? And it was like David and Goliath. So I looked at him when he said that. Much different than the other, the other people speaking to me. And I looked at him, and I won't tell you his last name, but he was a dean also. And I said, Dean, we'll call him Jones, Dean Jones. It's not been a very good year for me. Uh, my wife, of a couple of years, decided to cut her losses, so we got divorced. My dad had colon cancer. I had something called Graves' disease, and my thyroid acted up, and they gave me some medication to. Uh, to shut it down, and then they had to give me medication to pick it up. And I'm so confused, I'm not even sure if that's legitimate. So I don't know that I want to be a doctor, but I don't know that I don't want to be a doctor. And so then he's looking at me, he's going, So, so, so. And then there was a point at which he just pushed into me, and I looked at him, and tears are coming down my cheeks. I'm surrounded by these other doctors. And I look at him and I said, so I'd like to plead insanity and throw myself on the mercy of a room filled with doctors. And he looked at me, a he, uh, big heavy guy, smoked cigar, he put a cigar out, he stubbed it out and he turned his seat around and he wouldn't look at me. And then everybody in the room, it's looking at me and it's just quiet. And Dean McNary said, Mark, you can leave. And see, what I didn't realize is that a medical school loses matching funds when someone takes a leave of absence. But they allow people to take one leave of absence because, you know, it's not that unusual. I mean, if you read about people dropping out of medical school and whatnot, it's not that unusual. But dropping out a second time, I can understand they want to cut their losses. So I go outside the room and I'm in a stairwell and I have my arms around the staircase. And about 15 minutes pass, and then Dean McNary comes out, and he puts his arm over my shoulder. He said, Mark, take a year, take five years. You'll always be welcome back at Boston University Medical School. So I took a year, and at that time, I went out to a place called the Menninger Foundation, which was one of the most well-known psychiatric training programs. At that point, it was in Topeka, Kansas. It's now in Houston. And I went out there because I wanted to get away from Boston, where I grew up, and from uh, the West Coast, where I went to undergraduate school. I just needed to give my mind a break, and so there I was doing this medical student thing at Topeka State Hospital, and in the, in the middle of winter, and I just go on walks with schizophrenic farm boys. I grew up in a suburb of Boston, but I could somehow connect with them. I could relate to them, and I remember asking some of the psychiatrist, is this legitimate? It's different than medical school. They said, no, no, it's legitimate and you have a knack. Up to that point, I didn't have a knack at anything. So I finished that, went back to med school, finished. Then I went to UCLA in my training in psychiatry. And then what happened is I decided to pay it forward what Dean McNary did for me, And so when I got through my training, one of my early mentors after Dean McNary was a fellow named Dr. Ed Schneidman, and he is a pioneer in the field of suicide prevention. He is to suicide prevention what Steve Jobs was to personal computers, what Elon Musk is to Tesla. And he kept referring me to these very suicidal people and none of them died. And I was just paying forward. What Dean McNary did for me is that I looked into their eyes, and I learned to listen into their eyes. And what I'm trying to teach the world now, because I have a book called Just Listen, which is in 28 languages and became the top book on listening in the world. And I've spoken in Russia, the United Kingdom, Canada, uh, India, and three cities about listening. And I'm trying to teach the world how to listen into people, which is different than listening to them. And that's what I did. I listened into my suicidal patients. And instead of trying to check boxes and fit them into some sort of category, I connected with them in the dark night of the soul, which is where Dean McNary connected with me. And I want to share something, which I haven't shared in other podcasts. So some years ago, I had a conversation, and, and I need to reach out to him the head of the think St. John the Divine in New York, the uh, head pastor. And he and I became friends. And I shared this story with him that I'm sharing with you. And I'm Jewish. They're speaking with Reverend Jim Kowalski. And I got this weird feeling as I'm sharing it. I said, Jim, Dean McNary was an angel. I don't even know what I'm talking about. It's the wrong religion. But I think he was an angel sent into my life to rescue me so that I could help other people. And I shared that story with him. And I'm uncomfortable saying the following because it feels like I'm puffing myself up. But I shared the story with him and then I, and then I shared with him about reaching into suicidal patients and, and holding them by the nape of the neck in the dark night of the soul, and when they felt less alone because they felt felt by me, they started to cry with relief. And when I shared that with him, he says to me, Mark, you're an angel. Oh, it freaked me out. I will tell you, I don't believe it. I don't believe a word of it. I'm just sharing that because I've never shared that on a podcast before.
1: Thank you for sharing all of that, and especially for being so willing to talk about something that is very much a pivotal moment in your life. And and the fact that that led to so much of who you became, and I'll paraphrase from a blog article that I read from a few years back, where you talk about this story is today you do your best to stand up for people in their time of need. And you do it because you don't want people to fall through the cracks. And the reality is you could have been one of those people who fell through the cracks and who knows how your life would be different as a result. And in a minute, I want to get into some fun things like neurology. We might talk a little bit about Elon Musk and go down that path. But before we go there, I want to tap into one other thing we'll call the origin story for you, Mark. And I want to know, you were raised in somewhat of a a stern household from what I understand, where you weren't really allowed to be vulnerable or share in a very vulnerable way where it it wasn't common for you to share in that way. How do you think growing up in a house like that informed the person you are today?
0: Look, and both my parents have passed away and they did the best they could. And I can tell you, compared to a lot of the parents of some of the patients I've seen over the years, I was blessed to have them. Because they really did the best they could. But, you know, they were depression age and vulnerability was not really something that you showed. And if people say, what really is your origin story? And I think my origin story is that I didn't believe in my gut feelings because the world told me they were wrong. You know, what does that have to do with anything? What does that mean? And even when I was training in uh, medical school and psychiatry, my gut feelings, We're not something that fit into the diagnostic and statistical manual. In fact, I want to share three anecdotes, and then maybe we'll get to some of the fun stuff. But these three anecdotes, I think, will inform you and some of our listeners. And it's what I call listening into people's minds, into people's eyes, and into people's souls. So after I came back from medical, uh, from my second uh, dropping out, I went back to medical school, and I was then in my third year. And so what you're doing is clerkships. And I was doing a clerkship at the Boston Veterans Hospital, and you do rounds in the morning. And in the rounds, there's an intern, there's a resident, there's attendees, attending doctors, maybe a a radiologist, other specialties. And we were outside Mr. Smith's room, and everyone is... Trying to win points with the attending doctor, and I'm just listening, and I'm just overwhelmed, and I had nothing to say because everyone is everyone is chomping at the bit with he needs more uh, tests, he needs radiology, he needs surgery, he needs such and such. And a nurse comes over from the nurses' station, and we're outside. Uh, I think I called him Mr. Jones or Mr. Smith. We're outside his room, and the nurse says didn't you hear Mr. Smith uh, jump from the roof last night? He's in the morgue. And they went totally quiet. Nobody knew what to say. And I'm telling you, Bill, I heard a voice in my head, and it said, maybe he needed something else. So that was one anecdote. Fast forward, I finished med school, I finished my psychiatry training. And during that, I think the last year of my psychiatry training, we do consultations to different wards. It's called consultation liaison psychiatry. So I'm consulting to the oncology ward, and there's a patient there with an illness that hadn't been diagnosed, but years later would be diagnosed as AIDS. And I was paged by the oncologists, and they said, we need you to come up to OK and order for restraints on this patient's legs and arms, because he's pulling at his IV, he's kicking on the bed, he's pulling at the respirator tubing, and we need you to come up and okay the order for those restraints, and also to okay the antipsychotic medication, because we have to calm him down. And I go into the room, and his eyes are as big as saucers, and he can't speak because he's on a respirator in his neck. He's screaming at me, going, "Ah, ah, ah," and I said, what is it? And he's going, "Ah, ah." And then I give him a pencil. I say, write it down. And he scribbles something down. And I thought, well, the doctors are right. He's just a—he's uh, psychotic. And I said, look, you were pulling at your IVs. You were kicking and writhing on the bed. You were pulling at your respirator uh, tube. We had to put your arms and legs down. And we have to give you something to calm you down. And when you calm down, we'll take everything off. And he just looks at me, eh, eh, eh. And so I okay the order. And then a day later, I get paged by one of the doctors and they say, "Uh, Mr. Jones is up in his bed. He's off the respirator. He's seated. And he told us to page you. So I go into his room. He's seated in bed. And he looks at me like I'm looking at you. And he says, pull up a chair. And he seats me in a chair with his eyes and he says, what I was trying to tell you is that a piece of the respirator tube had broken off and was stuck in my throat. And you do know that I will kill myself before I go through that again. Do you understand? And then I looked at him and my eyes teared up and I said, whoa, I'm so sorry. I understand. So that was my episode of learning to listen into people's eyes. And in the final episode, is There I am practicing someone as a specialist in suicide prevention, and I'm seeing Nancy. And Nancy had made two or three suicide attempts prior to my meeting her, and I didn't think I was helping her. I was seeing her two or three times a week. She never really looked at me. She wasn't catatonic, but in those days, I used to moonlight once a month at a, a state hospital, a metropolitan state hospital in Norwalk, California. And so I'd cover for the other doctors and I'd cover on a whole weekend. And sometimes you wouldn't sleep for 24 hours. And so there I was moonlighting and I came in and it's a Monday and there's Nancy. And I sit down and I'm sleep deprived and she has, she's not looking into my eyes. And suddenly all the color in the room turned to black and white. So I'm looking out and the room is black and white and I'm getting cold and I'm thinking I'm having a stroke or a seizure. So she's not looking at me, and I do a neurologic exam on myself. I tap my elbows, I tap my knees, I put my finger out to see if I'm seeing double vision. And I think to myself, I'm all here. And then I thought, I have this crazy idea that I am looking out at the world through her eyes emotionally. And it got colder. And I leaned into it. I'm sleep-deprived. I'm leaning into it. And then because I was sleep deprived, I blurted something out that normally I wouldn't say. And I said, Nancy, I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you and I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to, to get out of all that pain. And I thought, did I think that or did I say that? And then I realized I just gave her permission. I just messed up. And that was the first time she looked at me. And she looked at me and she grabbed onto my eyes the same way as that Mr. Jones had grabbed onto my eyes. And I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding. I'm overdue. And I said, what are you thinking? And she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of all that pain, maybe I won't need to. And then she smiled. And then I leaned in and I grabbed onto her eyes, like I'm grabbing onto yours, And I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you any treatments that you've been through before unless you say maybe we should try a medication. Maybe we should try this or that. Would that be okay? And we're holding eyes. And she nodded as if to say, keep talking. And then I leaned in further, just like Dean McNary did with me. And I said, what I am going to do is I'm going to find you wherever you are and I'm going to keep you company there as long as it takes, because I just don't want you to be alone there anymore. Is that okay? And then her eyes teared up a little with relief, and she smiled. So I think it's from those experiences that I learned to be able to put myself in other people's minds and look at the world through their eyes. I mentioned before the podcast that I was a advisor to the O.J. Simpson trial with the prosecution. And I was probably in the courtroom 25 times. And they said, just come in and fax us what you see because it's off the wall, but sometimes we'll use it. So, for instance, something that they used at the end, if, if you remember the trial or older people, at the end, Marsha Clark was giving her closing arguments. And one of the things I said is, You know, the way to control a jury or influence a jury when they go into deliberation is maybe you should haunt them. So make sure in your closing argument, you play the famous 911 tapes when Nicole Brown Simpson calls 911 to say, OJ is trying to break in to the back of her uh, uh, townhouse. So I was able to look at the trial through the eyes of the jury, and then maybe we can get into some fun stuff. I I hope some of your listeners have not tuned out because they we haven't gotten into the fun stuff about my playing Steve Jobs coming back from the dead (laughs) and my running by you, my figuring out Elon Musk for you to tell me whether you think I got him figured out.
1: I cannot wait. I want to dive into that. One thing I am curious about before we go into the Steve Jobs, Elon Musk. Land and some of the neurology and some of the thinking behind the man or men, I am curious because you just highlighted three amazing stories. And I think they really helped to highlight how your early experience as a med student, and I'm sure subsequent experiences that allowed you to listen, to have empathy, to Hang on and listen into the eyes, as you've said. For 30 years you practiced as a psychiatrist, as a clinical psychiatrist, seeing a huge amount of suicidal patients. Not a single one of them committed suicide. I need to
0: know why you think that's the case. Now I want to be completely honest. You know, many of your patients, you see them for a while, and then so I can't say that they never committed suicide or died by suicide. I, I hope they didn't. But while I was treating them, they didn't. And I'll give you an insight into the suicidal mind. And recently, during the pandemic, I've co-authored two books. One was called Why Cope When You Can Heal. And I introduced the approach that I used with those people, and I'm trying to teach the world. And it's called surgical empathy. And what that means is if you've never been suicidal, you won't understand what I'm about to say. But if you have been suicidal, what you'll agree with is that when you have, feel hopeless and helpless and worthless and useless and meaningless and purposeless and it's pointless to go on, you feel despair. You feel unpaired with reasons to live, hopeless without a future, meaningless without meaning, and you pair with death to take the pain away. So death is compassionate to pain that won't go away, and anyone who's been suicidal on one or more occasions and have, hasn't acted on it, I will tell you, they don't talk about it because they don 't want to scare people, but they tuck it in their back pocket, saying to themselves, "If worse comes to worse, I can always end it." They don't bring it up because you know they don't want to freak out everyone, And so what I realized is... They felt felt by death. Their pain wouldn't go away in any other way. And so I think what happened is that Nancy felt felt by me. And I didn't judge her for being suicidal. I said, look, I can't help you kill yourself, but I'll still think well of you. In fact, here's something. It's a little bit of dark, gallows humor. But, you know, I was a suicide specialist. (laughs) And I remember one guy comes in. And he's sharing what his life is like. And I look at him and I say, why haven't you done it? He said, what? I said, why haven't you killed yourself? He said, what do you mean? I said, I just felt a little bit about what your life feels like to you. And if I felt all of it, I would have killed myself. And I'm reasonably strong, but I'm not as strong as you. So I'm wondering why you haven't. And he looks at me and he says, wait a minute you don't think I'm weak and you don't think I'm crazy? And I looked at him and I said, look, I'm not going to repeat myself too many times. You are not weak. You're stronger than me. That's why I asked you, why haven't you killed yourself? I said, crazy is another matter. (laughs) And then this is again, like it touches me like Reverend Jim Kowalski saying, and again, it feels like I'm puffing myself up. And I said, why didn't you do it? And then he looked at me, Bill, and he said, I was waiting to meet you. Yeah, yeah. What I want to share with your listeners, because what I'm trying to teach the world, and in fact, my book Just Listens in 28 languages, and I may be doing a Just Listen 2.0, and the subtitle might be something like, uh, The Antidote to a World That's Grown Angry and Crazy. Listening. And we can all do that differently. And so that's what I'm trying to teach the world. And here is a tip, but then we got to get into the, you know, the, the tease of the Elon Musk stuff, the Steve Jobs thing. I spoke in Russia a couple of years ago, and I headlined with a Nobel Prize winner named Daniel Kahneman. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. And he has a new book out called Noise. Brilliant guy, Nobel Prize winner. And I was a headliner along with him because five of my nine books are bestsellers in Russia. And again, the Russian people are terrific. We're not here to talk about leadership. And one of the things that I shared with them, and if you're listening in and you go to YouTube and you look up Michelangelo listening and my name, you'll find this video clip with a thousand Russians. And one of the things I'm Trying to teach the world, and I'm going to demonstrate it with you right now, is that underneath people listening to you, they are listening for something. Mm -hmm. And if you can get what they're listening for, and you provide it, they will lean into you. Nancy was listening for hope. And what helped her to feel hopeful was feeling less alone in the dark night of the soul. And when she felt less alone there, instead of someone throwing treatments at her, she started to cry with relief. So I'll demonstrate it with you right here and now. You've been listening to me. You've given me a long leash. So I hope uh, you know your audience better than I do. And I hope I haven't abused the long leash you gave me. But underneath it, I think you're listening for something that's different than you listening to me. Tell me if this is accurate. And if it is, Tell me what it feels like if it's accurate. I think the trust and confidence that your audience has in you matters deeply to you. And you want to honor their trust and confidence that you will bring them podcasts that bring them value, maybe value that helps them succeed or even change their life. And so, my guess is you're listening for from guests something that will enable you to honor the trust and confidence coming from your listeners and maybe even listening for a guest who might be a best-selling author, but he or she is awful, so awful, you have to go back and say, yeah, we couldn't post the interview. Maybe we can do it over again because you always want to bring your listeners value and you don't want to waste their time or insult them. Is any of that true?
1: Of course, I, I think value is. Uh, Christo says value is. Tell me something I don't already know. And when I meet with people, my intention and my goal is to unearth, to provide a platform and a and a stage really to allow my guests to shine in an area they're uniquely qualified to shine, where they can share something that. They and only they can share. It's their own personal story, yes, but beyond the story, it's how does that story connect back to the listener in a way that will be meaningful to them, which is, will lead us to the next part of the conversation. But did you want to close off on that thought?
0: Well, well I think the thought is this. So, so I'm trying to give your listeners and viewers nuggets. So wherever you're at, whenever you're having a conversation, doing a presentation, even pitching, if you can focus on what the other person is listening for underneath what they're listening to, they will be drawn to you. So every three months, I do a six-hour course for an accelerator called Expert Dojo. There's usually about 20 startups. And the best part of it, according to them, is when I talk to them about pitching investors So they've run out of friends and family and angel money and they need to get investors. And one of the things I share with them that I'm sharing with your entrepreneurs and founders is that when you're pitching an investor or investors and they smile in three or four minutes and you think it's a yes, it's not a yes. They're smiling because they've already decided it's a no. And they realize you got 15 more minutes of a deck that they're not interested in. <laughs> so they, in five minutes, they've they've decided, I don't want to be rude because you put so much work into this. I'm smiling because I don't want to be rude. And if you think I'm incorrect and you think that that smile should lead to the end of your pitch and they say, how soon can we invest and can I give you more money? And it doesn't end up that way. You know, I rest my case. So what I coach people on is that when you see that telltale sign, and I say investors don't smile because it's about money, what you might want to do at that point, because they're smiling because they don't want to be rude, is you stop your presentation, you look at them, and you say, can we uh, pause for a moment? They're going to get nervous because you caught them not wanting to be rude, and they're going to go, what? And what you say to them is when I started this presentation, we were on the same level. You had money, and I'm a company that needs that money. And right now, you have money, and I have a company that's never going to see any of it. So you were listening for something, and you didn't hear it. And it may be we have what you were listening for but our deck doesn't reflect that. I mean, we put together our deck. We thought this is what you're listening for, and it turned out not to be. So can you tell me what you were listening for? And by the way, if I have it, I'll let you know. But if I don't, I'm in a cohort of 20 startups. I might be able to introduce you to two or three that have it, and I'm happy to make the introduction, and I don't get any money off that. So what you've done is you've taken a potential investor who smiled and wasn't going to give you any money. You've pivoted to being focused on their success at your own expense. You may introduce them to two or three companies where they could make some money. And so what's happened is you've now made f- four friends for life. The investor is going to be appreciative that you focused on their success, and whoever you introduce them to is going to be appreciative that you focused on introducing them. So do you see how that pivots it by realizing that they were listening for something and you weren't delivering it?
1: I love the the part about being okay and comfortable to hitting the pause button. It may be uncomfortable. It may feel unnatural. You may want to avoid doing it, but it's the best thing to achieve the outcome you want because if they're listening for something and you're not delivering You need to pivot. And maybe the pivot is not pivot because you can provide it. Maybe the pivot is you know somebody who can provide it. No, you got it perfectly.
0: Thank you for summarizing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, as you know, I I have a, a background in working for Tesla, and I had the opportunity to work relatively closely to Elon. I was one layer removed. I didn't have one on ones with him or anything like that, but he was on a few conference calls. Things of that nature. So I got to observe him work. And more specifically, I got to observe his role in creating the the culture, the ethos, and really the mission behind why Tesla has become the company it's become. And at the same time, I'm deeply fascinated by the psychology behind the man, specifically the mind of the man and, and why he acts and does the things he does and influences the way he influences. And I'm equally curious about Steve Jobs. So I know uh, you alluded to your impersonation of Steve Jobs and that being something that you did. So we could talk, we could go either direction or both directions. Curious, as you think about Elon Musk, what have you uncovered that may be valuable to the listeners?
0: And tell me if you think I'm off. Uh, as I had mentioned before, when I played Steve Jobs, uh, at one of the presentations to an entrepreneurial community I belong to, one of the members is Nolan Bushnell, who was his boss at Atari. Mm-hmm. I called Nolan up during the Q and A. I said, "Nolan, you know, you know, am I on target here? What's going on?" And he said, "You got it." So tell me if you think this is true. And it's the mind of a visionary thinker. So one of the things that distinguishes a visionary from a non-visionary, or there's a few things. One thing is they see the unknown as an adventure to be lived. Whereas non-visionaries see the unknown as a danger to be avoided. So they are drawn to the unknown, and it attracts them more than it scares them. And the point is, it's always done that. Also, one of my mentors, Warren Bennis, a big leadership guy, he gave me this quote. They are first-class noticers, and noticing is different than looking, watching, and seeing. So I don't know if it's true, but there is a story I heard about Elon Musk and Tesla that uh, you may even know the person. If the story is true, it may not be. He was, he was speaking to someone who said, hey, look at these laptops that have batteries. Batteries are getting better. Maybe you could put one in a car. And so he was a first-class noticer. And not only was he a first-class noticer, he noticed, yeah, if we put it in a car, let's not make it look like one of those junky small. Things that should re- be driving on the sidewalk. Let's put it in a Lotus. You know, let's put it in something small, but a Lotus is pretty, uh, pretty sexy. So that'll attract some interest of people who are drawn to that. And then after they got that, they said, "Well, why don't we make the next one comparable to a, an S sedan for Mercedes? Let's do something really big. Let's blow them away." So, a visionary is someone who sees the unknown as an adventure. They're first-class noticers. And the third thing is they can move seamlessly between divergent thinking and convergent thinking. So divergent thinking means just looking into the unknown and noticing things without getting worried. And I think one of the reasons that Elon Musk likes psychedelics and drugs is he's a control freak So when you're a control freak, you tend to be convergent a lot in your personality. So I think he likes psychedelics because it helps his divergent thinking. It helps him to go into the unknown and be a first-class noticer. And rather than getting freaked out, he doesn't get freaked out because his experience is that when he goes out there and he just looks at stuff that nobody else can see, the dots spontaneously come together. And he can begin to envision a product or a service. So did you track with that? And do you think, does any of that resonate with your experience? Well, absolutely. And I think the
1: thing that stands out the most is the second part of that, the notice part. They all do, but especially the notice part. And the reason why he's a first-class noticer is he's also a first-class question asker. And he knows what question to ask, not just that he's asking a question, but he's asking the right question to the right person about the right thing. And when you ask enough questions, you then can piece together by noticing and by observing and by seeing what should be changed. And then the the first part of what you said that a visionary sees it as an adventure to be lived as opposed to a dangerous, treacherous landscape to be avoided. I believe that he, he's had that, as you said, his whole life. And the reason he's had it his whole life is he's always imagined. From a young age, he had to imagine. He had a troubled youth, a dad that was hard on him, living in a country that had all sorts of traumatic influence on who he became. He imagined a different world, but the world was so real to him because he believed he would be in that world. And so now flash forward to today, We are all the benefactors of this world that Elon Musk is envisioning before its reality. And because he's envisioning it and it's so real that he could taste it, feel it, touch it, it actually becomes real. And that's the mind-blowing component of observing history in motion, which is I think we all have a, a first row seat in this.
0: And I think that goes along with something else. So, so I have a, a partnership and a very small company. Uh, we may grow it. It's called Michelangelo Mindset. If you go to MichelangeloMindset.com, you'll find it. And Michelangelo famously said, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set it free. So we believe that the Michelangelo Mindset can see into the future and taste it and clarify it and then carve a way to set it free. So if you're an entrepreneur or a leader, I suggest you you look up Real Leaders. It's a magazine that's in airports, Michelangelo Leadership. And what we talk about is, if you could imagine this, and this is the only – I do executive coaching. I'm a a Marshall Goldsmith, 100 Coaches coach, but I only do the coaching that is in that article because – I think if you're a leader and you look at your people or the world, inside your people in the world is a part of them that wants to trust you, have confidence in you, feel safe with you, respect you, admire you, like you, and feel inspired by you. And if you think that's wrong, then you won't be much of a leader if they don't trust you, they don't have confidence in you, they don't feel safe with you, they don't respect you, admire or like you. And one of the best examples of someone who manifested that, except his career went down in flames, is if you can remember uh, Governor Cuomo, when he was doing the debriefing sessions during the pandemic, uh, you trusted him, you had confidence in him, you felt safe because he told you what was going on, what was going to. He had a sense of humor, you admired him, and he inspired you and you felt safe, I mean, it's really a shame that his career ended up the way it did. But I think during those debriefing sessions, he was exactly that leader. So the Michelangelo mindset is, is you see in your people the leader that they want to follow. You see in your customer or client, inside your customer or client is a desire to buy something. Inside your investors is a desire to give you their money. Inside hiring, There is talent that wants to work for you. So, Michelangelo mindset is the more you can drill into that and free it, the more the customer, client, investor, talent you're trying to approach, uh, people that you want to stay with you through tough times. But that's what Elon Musk would do: is he could look out into the future and see the experience that he wanted as a child, which is to feel excited and hopeful instead of beaten up and abused. And see that it was an, an unlimited future. So rather than feeling closed in from the abuse that he suffered, what he became is a noticer of increasingly unlimited futures. So it's, it's not just a coincidence. He's talking about landing on Mars long after he's dead. True. So, what about jobs? Give me your
1: take on jobs. What's the, let's go into his mind a little bit. Clearly, you've, you've channeled him in your work and you've, you've studied him, what should we notice, speaking of notice, what should we notice about him and his own way of thinking and why it was so effective?
0: Well, he was very similar in terms of seeing the unknown as an adventure. He got Nolan Bush to finance a trip to India to go explore that. I did the Steve Jobs return one-man show. I, I probably performed it about 15 times. But the main purpose of that was to highlight a video clip. and you might supply this to your listeners or viewers, but if you look up Xerox Park, Steve Jobs, uh, National Geographic, Xerox Park, Steve Jobs, National Geographic, you'll see a dramatization of Steve Jobs first setting eyes on the mouse, the graphical user interface at Xerox Park. And if you watch. The two and a half minute video of the dramatization, you'll notice three things. And if you're listening to this, these are the three things that you must accomplish in your presentations, in your marketing, if you want to attract fanatical fans and customers. When the video starts, there he is, you know, the arrogant person with his arms crossed, kind of almost bored. And then he sees the mouse and the icons on the screen. And suddenly his eyes open up and we call that wow. Wow means I can't believe what I'm seeing and watching. Nancy felt wow, I can't believe that I'm feeling hopeful. And then he transitions, he says to the Xerox technician, can I try it? And then the wow increases And the music goes up in the video clip, and it shows you the icons, and he starts to sweat. So the wow is amazing. And then in the video clip, he looks at Steve Wozniak, and the second step is, hmm, HMM. And Steve Wozniak was his technician. And the hmm means, this is too good to pass by. This is too good to ignore. I don't know what we're going to do with it, but it's too good. That's the hmm. And Steve Wozniak actually weighs in on the video clip. And then it ends with Walter Isaacson saying, they didn't know what to do at Xerox Park with this, but Steve Jobs went back to Apple and created the Macintosh. And so the last part of the trifecta for marketing is yes. Wow. Hmm. Yes. Sold. And if you think of his presentation in 2007, also something I'm suggesting to your listeners is what I call the rule of threes. You know, three strikes and you're out red, white, and blue. There's something about three that seems to be compelling. And he does probably one of the top five presentations of a new product ever. And I may be messing it up. But in 2007, he gets on the stage and he says, It's an iPod. It's a telephone. It's an internet connecting device. It's an iPod. It's a telephone. It's an internet connecting device. These are not three separate entities. This is one. I give you the iPhone. And that created, wow, Hmm. yes, in the world. And they keep repeating that every time there's a new presentation, all the lead up. What are they going to present? You know, Are they going to upgrade the, uh, the iPhone? Are they going to upgrade the uh, MacBook? You never know. And so, if you're listening in, go to your marketing department, put yourself in the shoes, channel your customer and client. Look at your pitch deck through the eyes of your investor. Look at how you have a conversation with talent you're trying to poach from your competitor. And if you're not creating, wow, hmm, yes, fix it.
1: I love that. I'm so glad you brought that up because I I had that listed in my notes as one of the things I wanted to cover. The last thing I want to cover ties into that a bit, which is, The importance of buy-in and the persuasion cycle. Can you talk a little bit about why that's so important and your your thinking on persuasion generally and, and why there's a cycle and what that cycle looks like?
0: Yes. In my book, Just Listen, and then there's a subsequent book, Talking It Crazy, there's one graphic. And the one graphic in Just Listen is the persuasion cycle. And what it talks about is what you have to do inside people's minds in a conversation, to move them around the persuasion cycle. And so if you think in your mind's eye of people being resistant to you, then they're listening to you, then they're considering what you're saying, and then after they consider what you're saying, they're willing to try it or buy it. The next step is they buy it or try it. And then the final step is glad they did and continuing to do it. And it's interesting. I've done presentations all around the world. I'll give you a taste of it. It'll be interesting if you don't know what I'm about to say. So I tell people, how many of you know the secret to the FedEx logo? And usually about now more people know about it, but probably 50% of the room knows it. And I said, I want the people in the room who don't know the secret to cross their arms. And then I'm going to show the logo on the screen, and the people who do know the secret, I want you to scream it out. So here are the people who don't know the secret with their arms crossed, and their arms are crossed in their mind, resistant to listening. You know, They're crossing their arms. And so you show the logo, and 50% of the room yells out, it's the white arrow between the E and the X. And if you look at the FedEx logo, you see a white arrow between the E and the X, just staring at you. And what happens is a fair amount of the people with their arms crossed uncross their arms and they go, wow, I never saw that. (laughs) So you're opening their mind. And then what happens is when I do the presentation, I say, now here's how marketing works. When you leave this conference and you see a FedEx truck, what are you going to notice? And I say, I put my hand to my ear and they say, the white arrow. And then I said, here's how viral spreads. You're in a traffic jam. You're running out of small talk with the person next to you. And in front of you is a FedEx truck. What are you going to say to the person next to you? And I put my hand by my ear again. And they say, do you see the white arrow? Because you want to be a smarty pants. And that, my friends, is an example of wow, hmm, yes, and viral spread. Mm, Love that. What a
1: great story, man. I'd love to see the audience reaction and be a part of something like that. So final bit of advice from you. If you're thinking about the person listening to this show who wants to do something meaningful, who wants to do something significant, who wants to be audacious enough to think that they can actually change the world. They can do something that is so important that the world is actually different as a result of them being here. Maybe they're a visionary. Maybe they channel some of the things that you mentioned about Elon. Maybe they channel some of the things you mentioned about Steve Jobs. What's your final piece of advice? Let's make this applicable. What can someone do? Either an area that they focus or something that they really make a key part of who they are. What's your final Last word of advice for somebody, and then we'll get into some of the things that you have going on. You've covered a few things, but we'll cover some of the other things you have going on. But what's that final piece of advice for a world changer?
0: So here's another story. I have a podcast called My Wake Up Call, which you're going to be on, and I've had some, a wide range of guests from Larry King to Norman Lear to Jordan Peterson to Ken Blanchard to Tom Steyer. To Marshall Goldsmith, to Dory Clark, to Liz Wiseman, uh, all kinds of people, and one of the people was Tim Brown. He's the chair of Ido. He was the CEO of Ido for many years, and when he sh- opened up about his origin story, I said, "Tim, you're a first-class noticer. He never heard them. He loved it so much that they put the the episode up at Ido. But one of the things that Ido does is they have Sociologists, computer scientists, psychologists, biologists, all kinds of people. And they basically say, go out in the world and be a first-class noticer. So if you see people that are frustrated by something in a supermarket, go up to them and find out what's frustrating them. And then ask them, what makes you really mad about this this place? Because if you can find a way and give a solution to something that frustrates and angers people, you're going to market. Or if you go out to people and they seem to be happy. And you say, I couldn't help but notice you seem to be happy about this thing. What do you like most about it? What would cause you to be incredibly excited about it? Where you would tell all your friends to come see this movie, you know, come shop in this store? What, What would they need to do? And he'd basically send all these people out from different subspecialties and then they'd come back and they'd share what they discovered. So if you're wanting to make a dent in the world and I'll share something and I don't mind giving it away and it's grandiose and it may or may not happen, but I'm partnering with the former co-founder and CEO of Singularity University. His name is Rob Nail. He's a futurist. And he and I and a young man are partnering on something because I feel a certain urgency to help the world. So if you want to stretch beyond that, yes, you can make make money finding out what really ticks people off or what would really excite them, and you build those things. Uh, But because of my age and a sense of urgency, what we're working on is a book, a podcast, a documentary, uh, live events, and a social media platform. And I'll just give it away, but we may change it. I don't like the first title of it, but the title, if we do a book, is A Reason to Believe. And the subtitle is The Rising Tide That Lifts All Hopes. And what we're doing, and we have a young man who's our Anthony Bourdain, we're going out and we're speaking to the 99% of the world. What is your vision for the future that your grandchildren will be born into? Because we believe 99% of the world. And I'm a grandparent, adore their grandchildren, and wants to create a world that will be better for their grandchildren than they had. And so we're collecting that, and we're collecting stories. We're hoping to turn it into a documentary as our young man spends a month in different countries, and then we'll bring it back. We'll do global events, and then we're looking at a social media platform that is private, meaning they don't use your data. It's a little bit like DuckDuckGo, and it's solely for the 99% of people to share what they're doing to make that shared vision of the future, which gives the present hope a reality. To lift all hopes. Well, I'll stop like we began, and I'll
1: use the words of Mac and share something that he said to you, which is the World needs goodness and kindness, and you deserve to be on this planet. So Dr. Mark Golston is the author and co-author of nine books, including the one we talked extensively about today, Just Listen, which has been translated in 28 languages. He's also, as we've talked about, the inventor of surgical empathy, which is a process for unlocking people from destructive behaviors from their inside out. He's also got so, so much to offer the world in the space of podcasting. He's been a host uh, of podcasts that he just mentioned, which I'm super excited to go on very, very soon. So we'll be able to do that very, very quickly, as well as a co-host of a podcast. So I'm going to go on my wake-up call with Dr. Mark Golston, which will be uh, hopefully released in the near future. Uh, He's also the co-host of Out of Our Minds and In Your Space, which is on Twitter Spaces. It's a mashup for creatives and thinkers. Please, please go check out his LinkedIn. Do you have your QR code ready for that? I don't know if you do have your QR code ready for that, but if you do, that would be great. Otherwise, I'll share the QR code. I know you have a QR code for your LinkedIn. Oh, there we go. Perfect. So go ahead and scan that. And uh, what else are you working on? Where else can people find you? You're a coach. You're an executive coach. I mean, what don't you do? This is probably a better question, but go check Mark out at LinkedIn. Go, go to his website as well. And uh, where else can they find you? And what else are you working on that would be valuable for them to know? And I'll include all those links in the show notes.
0: You've done an amazing job, Bill. I mean, you, you've covered so much. I'm really humbled by the prep you put into this. But you've covered it. MarkGoulston.com, LinkedIn. I have a number of posts at Medium, Substack. I've also contributed. I have 1,100 blogs or articles. And so you'll probably find between 40 to 70 posts at Harvard Business Review, Business Insider, Fast Company, Psychology Today, Huffington Post, Thrive Global. I'm probably leaving out a few, and if you just do a search under my name under any of those, you can find any of my uh, things. Oh, well, also, I guess my current publishing area is I'm a founding member of the Newsweek Expert Forum, so I'm one of their founding anchor members, and uh, you'll find me on panels and I share uh, articles. There's one that I'll share that is kind of a neat one. It's called the Three Steps to culture change on a dime. So when I played Steve Jobs, I o- often had a Q&A as Steve Jobs. And one of the things I talked about playing Steve Jobs is how I felt that there were certain words that were so overused that they were almost meaningless. And I included words like mission, vision. 50% of people don't even know the difference between those things culture all those and so in one of the Q&As someone said okay what would you call culture i can see that it's sort of meaningless because it's overused and there's a video clip on my youtube and i said spontaneously i said it's not a word but what i've come up with is can't wait to go to work you have a company where everybody who works there wakes up and says i can't wait to go to work you have a good culture You have a company where a significant number of the people wake up and say, oh, I hate my job. I'm trapped. Maybe I should send my resume out. you got a bad culture. And so this article, which you can find, uh, you click on Newsweek, Culture Change, or My Name, the three steps for culture change on a dime, because you don't need to spend 10,000 or hundreds of thousands of dollars. You can do this internally. All you have to do it's, there's three steps. You reach out to all your people and you say, if all of you woke up and felt, I can't wait to go to work, we're doing something right. So we want you to write down what we need to do differently, what positive things we need to do consistently, and what negative things we need to stop completely for you to say that uh, can't wait to go to work. Uh, then you collect them. And the second thing is you share with them what you're going to focus on. You say, these are the most common things that you recommended, positive and negative, and this is what we're going to do. And then the final step is we're going to check in with you quarterly to see how we're doing, and you're going to give us feedback, all anonymous, uh, how we can do a better job. You also tell them, this is not a place for you to finger point individuals, you know, go through HR for that. Can you see how that would work? That if you just elicit from them what would cause them to think, I can't wait to go to work. Plus, it's a great way to turn your company into something that attracts the best talent. Because imagine you're there going, having a coffee with a friend from another company, and they say, Tell me about your company. And if you were to say to your friend, I can't wait to go to work, and they don't feel that way about their company, they're going to say to you, Are you hiring?
1: (laughs) I love that. Well, in the words of Mac, Mac, you didn't screw up. Thank you for being the angel that you are. And thank you for being on Inside Out.
0: Thank you for having me on.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. Your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.